nobody in the history of the world has had a whole collection of books written about them even before they were born. Only Jesus. The 39 books of the Old Testament point forwards to Jesus like a big arrow. And we find the fine tip of this arrow here at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And also to a certain extent in Matthew's gospel, but Luke gives us a much fuller account of the events immediately preceding Jesus' birth. And he draws our attention to three aspects of this event, I think. Interestingly, each one is also a reason that people today might reject the validity of his claims. The events that Luke describes are supernatural, and so some will dismiss them as being implausible. They are rooted in Judaism, and so some will dismiss them as irrelevant, belonging to another time and place and people group. And they are revolutionary in a way that some will find unpalatable. So let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, these events are supernatural. Now, uh, we know that Jesus was fully human. He grew in his mother's womb. I expect he came into the world crying, as most babies do. He had his nose wiped and his nappy changed, and he was sick all over his parents. Uh, There is no doubt that Jesus uh, was uh, fully human. But Jesus is the man whose identity is God. God coming into the world clothed in our humanity is a supernatural event. Uh, Right at the beginning, verse 26, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Do we believe in angels? Yes. But the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about the physical appearance of angels. Uh, We just know that there are created supernatural beings who interact with the physical world on God's behalf. Angels. Next, Luke makes a point of telling us that Mary is a virgin pledged to be married to a man named uh, Joseph. Now, being pledged to be married, what we might call engagement, uh, came after a simple ceremony about a year before the, the wedding itself. And it was a serious commitment. If you were pledged to be married, you would need a divorce to annul that commitment. Uh, so Mary is pledged to be married. Uh, it's a really serious commitment. Uh, she and uh, Joseph are no doubt looking forward to their wedding day. And the angel tells her that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. Whereupon Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Uh, Now, this isn't an expression of doubt in the same way that Zechariah doubted that his wife Elizabeth would conceive in her old age. This is uh, a genuine question. How is this going to happen? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This was to be a supernatural birth, a virgin birth. Uh, Not to be confused, by the way, with immaculate conception. Uh, In one of uh, C.S. Lewis's essays, he mentions that the uneducated man says immaculate conception when what he really means is the virgin birth. Um, It quickly dawned on me that I was that man, uh, but that was a while ago, and I can now tell you that immaculate conception is a a Catholic doctrine that states that Mary herself uh, was, in fact, without sin. Uh, But there's no biblical warrant for for believing that. Mary was a godly woman, there's no doubt about that. Uh, But she was sinful, just as every human being is sinful with the exception of Jesus. But the fact is, we live in an age and a culture where people find this supernatural stuff quite difficult to accept. 
Uh, it could be that I've lost some of you already. You might be thinking, angels, virgin birth, hmm, I'm not really sure about that. But actually, the angels and the virgin birth is, is not our starting point. The Christmas story is primarily about the incarnation, God becoming man. If we believe, uh, and, and I hope we do, that, that God entered this world in the person of Jesus Christ, then we are already accepting uh, the most supernatural occurrence imaginable. Believing in the incarnation, but at the same time rejecting the existence of angels or the virgin birth, would be rather a strange position to hold. It would be a bit like saying, well, I believe that the, the earth revolves around the sun, but I can't believe that the earth is round. I mean, once we've accepted the incarnation, the virgin birth really isn't that difficult to get our heads around. However, there's a popular myth which leads people to believe that science and Christianity are incompatible. An atheist friend of mine recently posted a meme on Facebook which said, Oh no, once again you have destroyed my scientific facts with your knowledge of the Bible, said nobody ever. But science doesn't disprove the supernatural any more than the supernatural disproves science. By definition, the supernatural occurs outside of the realms of scientific understanding and the laws of nature. God stands outside of creation. We can't observe him through a telescope or a microscope. We can't dissect him or conduct experiments on him. If we could, what kind of a God would he be? The very fact uh, that we live in a universe where there are scientific laws and constants is good evidence in itself that we live in a universe that has been created in a very precise and ordered manner. Surely we would expect our creator, who stands outside of time and space, to be able to suspend the laws of nature. God entering into creation is a supernatural event. We should expect there to be an element of the miraculous about it. How could there not be? Uh, the virgin birth isn't what we might have expected, but somehow it rings true. Both Matthew and Luke give us uh, quite different and seemingly independent versions of these events. Both talk about the virgin birth. Uh, both talk about angels. The early church, which Mary belong to. Imagine Mary sitting uh, amongst us and we were able to ask her. The early church held to this version of events. It's very likely that uh, Luke, with his methodical approach, uh, rather like an investigative journalist, it's very likely that he interviewed Mary personally. Luke has included details about the virgin birth because he believed it to be true. For us, it's a matter of perspective. We can look at this through the lens of uh, scientific rationalism, or we can look at it through the lens of faith. Uh, but I, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not blind faith. It's faith based on solid historical evidence. I don't think it should surprise us that the incarnation presents us with something a bit different. Our culture wants to jettison belief in the supernatural. Uh, because if we can't believe in the supernatural, there is no room in our world for God. Uh, if we turn our backs on uh, 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 our creator, then we also turn our backs on objective morality. 
And that is the point. Human beings do not want to be morally accountable to God. We'd much rather be able to make it up as we go along. Scientific rationalism, and and don't hear me wrong, science itself is a good thing. It's interesting, it's fascinating, it teaches us a lot about the world we live in. But scientific rationalism as a worldview provides us with a pretext that kind of eases our conscience and allows us to reject our creator. Apart from anything else, this kind of thinking is very patronizing to the people of the ancient world. Uh, We tend to be very dismissive. We think, well, of course, they believed in the virgin birth. Uh, They didn't have science. They would have believed anything. Uh, But that's simply not true. People in the first century knew, as well as you and I, how babies are made. They knew that pregnant women were not generally virgins. Let us not imagine that the people of Jesus' day were unintelligent. I mean, 5,000 years before Christ, the Egyptians erected the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, engineers still can't fathom how they managed to build such a monstrous and precise structure without the aid of modern technologies. Uh, we do uh, the people of the ancient world a disservice if we see them as sort of very primitive and ignorant. Scientific discovery doesn't debunk the idea of the virgin birth or angels. It was just as miraculous 2,000 years ago as it is today. Jesus was conceived supernaturally. He performed miraculous signs and he was raised from the dead. These are unusual events. But we would expect the incarnation, God becoming man, to be accompanied by unusual events. So these events were supernatural. Next, we see that they're rooted in Judaism. And a more Jewish story, it would not be possible to imagine. So in the opening chapter of Luke, we have a priest, Zechariah, who received a visitation from an angel while serving in the temple in Jerusalem. His wife, Elizabeth, then conceives in her old age. And think of uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, from the book of Genesis. Uh, Very close parallel there. Uh, Then we have a Jewish girl pledged to be uh, married to a descendant of King David, uh, the superstar of Hebrew scripture. Uh, Mary's a virgin uh, who's going to give birth to a son in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And even Jesus' name, the name Jesus, means the Lord saves. The Lord had saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. He'd saved them from exile in Babylon. And now the Jews were eagerly anticipating a Messiah who would save them from the tyranny of Rome. It was well known that this Messiah would come from the line of King David. The angel said to Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Any mention of David's throne and the Jews would have immediately have thought of the restoration of Israel. The messianic overtones of this passage are impossible to miss. They come thick and fast. Luke clearly identifies Jesus with Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Even Mary's song is a string of biblical quotations, perhaps learned uh, by heart from childhood. If you look at the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, again, you'll see similarities. And Mary's song provides a link between the hope of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of God's promise in the New. This is a very 
Jewish story. But it's often difficult for people to imagine what these events that occurred 2,000 years ago uh, in a foreign land with a very different culture have to do with us today. But for the incarnation to happen, God had to enter into human history at a specific time and place. We don't know why God chose Israel. We don't know why he chose first century Palestine. But it had to be a time and a place. If the incarnation happened in Australia in 2017, there would be a greater sense of immediacy. But only for us. In 2,000 years' time, uh, it might all seem rather remote to someone living in the Middle East or any other part of the world for that matter. We need to recognize that history is not comprised of lots of events going on all over the world that are completely disconnected. It all has to do with the shared story of humanity. Uh, we, we could go back to the earliest traces of human life, uh, which might seem incredibly remote. Uh, chronologically distant, yes, but no less important to us today. I read an article on the CNN website. It said this, Advanced DNA testing combined with recently unearthed discoveries are bolstering the belief that if you look back far enough, all living human beings are descendants of a small, innovative, and ambitious set of people on the African continent. It points us exactly where the Bible points us, which is that we all came from the same place. And now this might seem remote, but we can't say, well, that's interesting, but it has no bearing on our lives today, uh, because if we didn't have those common ancestors, we wouldn't even be here today. It's more than interesting. It is vitally important to the history of humanity. And the incarnation is the most significant event in the history of the world. It is relevant to everybody who has ever lived, and it is relevant to everybody who will ever live. The fact that it's rooted in Judaism doesn't make it any less uh, important or significant, or relevant. God appeared to humanity in person. The when, and the how, and the to whom, those things are important, but they're not so important. What's really important is that God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus only had to come once to a particular place at a particular time, and that was enough to change everything forever. Finally, we see from Luke's account and from Mary's song in particular that the events that are unfolding are revolutionary. There's no doubt that the Jews, informed as they were by their scriptures, were expecting a revolutionary Messiah. Someone who, someone who would turn the political tide in Israel's favor. A king in the line of David who would usurp the throne and send the Romans packing. But that kind of revolution has been reenacted in every epoch of human history, forcibly tearing down an established political system and setting up a new one, setting up an alternative, that has been done over and over again. It's been done to death. Modern-day revolutionaries of that ilk include Fidel Castro, uh, Colonel Gaddafi, uh, and Robert Mugabe, among others. So you see, Israel's expectation was actually quite mundane. Nevertheless, their Messiah was coming, not to save Israel from Rome, but to save humanity from sin and death and to restore the goodness of creation. 
Jesus was coming to begin a revolution, but not the kind that anyone expected. And we see that from the outset. The angel's announcement is earth-shattering. The Messiah, the Son of the Most High, is on his way. But it wasn't announced with fanfare to a multitude in Jerusalem. It was announced to a teenage peasant girl in an obscure little town called Nazareth. If we had no Christian background and someone told us that God was coming into the world to save humanity, what would we imagine? I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because we know the Christmas story. Uh, But if we didn't, we would almost certainly uh, um, assume a huge and terrifying display of power. But it's almost as if God just crept in when no one was looking. Thinking back on our theme a few weeks back, this is a mustard seed revolution. God's kingdom appears imperceptibly small, but it keeps growing and growing. This is a revolutionary kind of revolution. But make no mistake, this is a revolution. Mary sang these words. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. You think of any of the countries around the world where there is a dictatorship. Imagine you went out into the streets of the capital city singing lines like that or or displaying them on placards. There's a very good chance that you would be arrested. This is revolutionary language. But Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire per se. He came to establish the kingdom of heaven over and above the kingdom of the evil one. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The world is gripped by evil. Selfishness, violence, hatred, and corruption are rife. This is a spiritual problem, and the only solution is for God's kingdom to be fully established. And we are invited to be citizens of that kingdom, to take part in an uprising against evil. There's no good wishing that the world were not so evil if at the same time we're hoping that we don't have to be morally accountable to God. Because that is to wish for something other than God's kingdom. If we want to see an end to evil, we must desire a world where Jesus is sovereign. And that starts by making Jesus sovereign in our own lives? Are we willing to surrender our lives, to uh, commit our lives, to give our lives to Jesus? Are we willing to make Jesus king of our lives? Because as Christians, we're called to live out Jesus's radical kingdom values. And that means worshipping God becomes our first priority. Now, for some, even as I said that, there may have been a knot of resistance. Why is that? Isn't God worthy of our worship? It means letting go of our selfish agendas and putting others first. Instead of hating our enemies, we're to love them. Uh, Rather than seeking revenge, we're to forgive. Uh, Instead of trying to dominate, we devote ourselves to service. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. That is how we take part in this revolution. It shouldn't surprise us that uh, a world that is in rebellion against God doesn't want the kind of revolution that Jesus brings. 
And so as we celebrate Christmas, we do so with Easter in sight. We can see where this revolution took Jesus. It took him all the way uh, to the cross. The world is not interested in what Jesus has to say. As we move towards Advent, let us remember uh, that Jesus, yes, he was crucified, but he was raised from the dead. Jesus will come again, and his kingdom will be fully established, and evil will be destroyed. We live in the light of that hope as we, as we await the crowning point of Jesus' revolution. Luke is pointing us towards an event. It's a supernatural event. It's an event that springs out of Judaism, and it's a revolutionary event, unlike any other. And next week, we'll uh, see the beginning of this clash between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, that you weren't prepared to leave the world uh, in, a, in a fallen and evil and degenerate state. We thank you that you came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ uh, to bring hope, to bring a revolution which will ultimately lead to evil being destroyed in this world, this creation of yours being restored And we pray, Father, that we will wholeheartedly uh, be part of that revolution by committing our lives to your son Jesus completely and by this Christmas really seeking to understand uh, what all this means and what it means for us as individuals in the way that we live and in our attitudes and our, um, our approach to life and other people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.